My God is alive, my God is alive, my God is creator and he is alive. My God is alive, my God is alive, my God is creator and he is alive. He made all the heavens and earth, yes it's true, he showed all his glory so there's no excuse. So worship, adore him, and baptize his name. So let all the ages his greatness proclaim. My God is alive, my God is alive, my God is alive. The Christ is alive, the Christ is alive, the Christ is our Savior, and he is alive. The Christ is alive. The Christ is alive, the Christ is our Savior, and He is alive. He rose from the bondage and gloom of the grave, exalted on high for the life that He gave. So glory and honor and praise is His name. So chaos of kingdoms His sonship proclaim. The Christ is alive, the Christ is alive. The Christ is alive. God's word is alive. God's word is alive. God's word is the Bible and it is alive. God's word is alive. God's word is alive. God's word is the Bible and it is alive. The Spirit inspired the great men of God who penned all the while here on this song, it sharpens and swords and it bears the same. Since power is failing, it's worth we proclaim. God's word is alive, God's word is alive, God's word is alive. I want you to think about how many of the Lord's people you actually know, like you personally really know. Now, I want you with me just for a little bit today. I want us to think about how large the church really is and how many people the Lord actually has on his side. Now, specifically, we're going to be taking a look at two different examples, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, where both times uh, the, the, the people of the Lord, the person of the Lord that we're looking at, they didn't have a big enough picture as to who all really belongs to the Lord. And I believe this is a very important lesson for us to just kind of look around and, and see who all does belong to the Lord at a time whenever it can be pretty easy for us to be divisive and for us to, to fight over uh, different issues, uh, many of which don't really have any type of eternal significance. But yet we can fight over them and we can disagree with, with fellow Christians and and sometimes hatred can creep in among us. I want us to look at the bigger picture. I want us to see and think about the Lord's people who are unknown. Going back to that idea, how many of the Lord's people do you know? Think about your own church, you know, your own congregation that you are a part of. How many people go there? You know, ours, we, we have several dozen people that you, you know, you obviously know those are Christians. And we know that there's, there's several uh, around the community and stuff and in, in the, the surrounding communities. So, I mean, you know, we, we maybe have contact with several hundreds. Let's say 
that you can even know, you know, all the Christians in the United States. You know that there are other Christians on the other side of the world. And also, let's just kind of, for, for sake of just getting the big picture, really, if you could, which I don't think is possible, but if you could even meet every single follower of God all over the globe currently, you know it's going to be different tomorrow. So it's never going to be possible for us to meet all of the Lord's people, at least not in this life. Now, in the next one, yes, I'm excited about that. I think it's going to be great to be able to meet these people, these men and women of faith that we read about in the Old Testament, that we read about in the New Testament, and to be able to just kind of, I guess I'll say it this way, you know, to, to sit down and have a cup of coffee. You know, I kind of like, like drinking coffee and visiting with people and stuff, and just have a cup of coffee with them and to be able to talk about their experience. Now, you know, obviously that's that's maybe kind of thinking a little too physical terms or whatever. But, you know, however that will be in the life that is to come, I'm looking forward to being able to sit around and, and to talk with people, to see their experiences and, and what all they, they endured, to be able to hear, even from the mouth of Jesus, all the things that, that he did, both that we know about in the Gospels, but then also the things that we don't know, the things that weren't written. So the Lord's people unknown, there is a lot that is unknown for any one individual throughout any given time in history, because the Lord's people amount to so many people. And sometimes we can start to feel small. Sometimes we feel like we are the only ones. We are not. The Lord has a great number of people who are his. So let's look at two occasions where people needed to have their view about who all is is followers of God expanded just a little bit. Let's start in the Old Testament. Now, I'm going to have a lot of, of different texts. I'm going to kind of tell you this story, and I'm, I'm just going to make a few comments along the way to carry this story along and maybe fill in some of the gaps as to where I where I overlook. But we're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 18. Now, this is the person of Elijah. And by the way, if you don't know all that much about Elijah, you know, start in like 1 Kings 17 and, and sort of continue on for several chapters. And you get this story about this great prophet of God. You know, sometimes we even hear about him in the New Testament. Yeah, his influence carried over that much. Now, it's very interesting that Elijah never sat down and wrote anything himself. You know, as far as we know, we don't have any book that's, you know, first and second Elijah or something like that. But Elijah was one of these prophets who did a lot of great things. These are a couple of the the more famous stories. But I want you to see an aspect of it that we oftentimes overlook. The first one is this. Uh, I guess I could call it the showdown at Mount Carmel. Now, I don't know exactly who used that phrase at first, but that's kind of what happens right here. And this is this is what happens. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 21 through 24, this is what Elijah does. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Okay, so this is what's going to happen. 
okay? And then in the next few verses, we see that Baal's prophets, they go first, and guess what? No fire. In fact, whenever they are, are, are trying to call out to their, their God and, and get him to light this fire, Elijah is actually taunting these pagan prophets. He's taunting their God, and he's actually kind of mocking their God. He even says, well, maybe he's fallen asleep, you know, maybe cry out a little bit louder. He says things like that to, to them. Then it's Elijah's turn. And guess what happens whenever it's Elijah's turn? You probably know it, but let's go ahead and read it. Verses 36 through 40 now of 1 Kings 18. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Keshon Valley and slaughtered there. Well, we see from this story that Elijah is clearly on the Lord's side, you know, without a doubt. And I guess you can also say the Lord is on Elijah's side and answering this this call, answering this this uh, this plea to set fire to this this uh, offering and show that the Lord is God. Well, Elijah right here, he is showing this great strength. And I mean, this has got to be kind of a highlight in his ministry in, in his prophetic ministry. But then news starts to spread about this victory right here, this victory on Mount Carmel. And then guess what happens to Elijah? Keep in mind, Elijah is human. And I don't want us to be too hard on Elijah because I don't know if too many of us would be very different if we were in the same situation. Right here, everything's great. This is a really, you know, cool, encouraging time. Yeah, the Lord, he is God. The Lord is God. But once news spreads about this victory, what happens with Elijah? First Kings chapter 19 now. The first four verses. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Wow. Like, can you imagine what has just happened in this guy's life, you know, in Elijah's life? Elijah, he went from showing great power, great strength, and mocking these other gods to fearing for his life. And even asking God to take his life. He said that he's, he's had enough. You know, he just, he wants to die. Well, the Lord is not finished with him yet. And I think that what, what continues on is so important for us to, to hear and to pay attention to as well. Verses 5 through 9. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, strengthened by the food. He traveled forty days and forty nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. 
And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, th this is how the story is continuing on. And, and I think it's a great question that the Lord asks of Elijah right here. He says, you know, what are you doing here? Perhaps this is also a great question for us to ask ourselves whenever we are feeling down. Now, I hope that we don't ever feel, you know, quite so down like what he's doing and actually asking God to take our lives. I, I hope that we don't get to that point. And I hope that you will re reach out to your brethren and reach out to other people who can help you at that time if you are you know, at all possibly getting near that, that realm. But the Lord looks at him and says, what are you doing here? What's going on? Sometimes we need to ask ourselves these same types of questions whenever we are feeling down. Now I want you to listen to Elijah's complaint and maybe uh, you might think that your situation could be a little similar to this. Well, I hope that you learn some things uh, from, from Elijah as well. And I know that I have found uh, this story to be a very encouraging one uh, you know, at this time for us to consider. But let's listen to Elijah's complaint first because that's what God is about to listen to as well. Verses 10 through 13 of 1 Kings 19 now. He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then the voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Once again, it's asking him this, this same question. But, you know, if you look at what he says, he describes himself. He describes the situation. Yes, it got bad in the nation of Israel. They were just turning their back on God. That's what the whole thing on Mount Carmel was all about. Uh, the prophets of Baal had come in. And, of course, a lot of the people were worshiping Baal as well. But then Elijah, he makes a statement. He goes, I'm the only one left. Now, if you paid attention uh, back in the previous chapter, you notice that's what he said also before. He said, look, Baal's got 450 uh, prophets. I'm the only prophet of the Lord. He was pretty negative uh, about himself and thinking that he's the only one that's left. And it's interesting in this story that what happens is, you know, we usually only talk about this gentle whisper and how the, how the Lord revealed himself to Elijah right here. But the point of this meeting is to pick Elijah back up and to see this bigger picture, to get him to realize he's not the only one left. Now, God hasn't exactly told him that just yet, but that's what God's about to tell him. God is also about to tell him that he's got some more work that he needs to do. So, 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 14 through 18. He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, the son of, uh, of Shaphat, from Abel, Mohalah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of, Haz uh, of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel 
all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Well, we see right here that, you know, Elijah, uh, he's saying the same types of things again, you know, saying, I'm the only one left, you know, what's going on? And the Lord gives him a task, tells him to anoint some other people. One of the people that he is supposed to go and anoint is Elisha. And he's going to be the prophet who is going to succeed Elijah. Now, you know, you probably already know about Elijah and Elisha and, and, and stuff. But right here, we also find out that it's not even just about how Elisha is faithful to God and so is Elijah. But then we see in verse 18 that the Lord says, I reserve 7,000 in Israel. Well, perhaps whenever we feel like we are the only one on the Lord's side, we need to remember this story. And we need to see that the Lord had 7,000 more people. It wasn't just about Elijah, but he started focusing so much on himself that he didn't realize there were a lot of unknown people of the Lord. At least they were unknown to him. The Lord knows them. The Lord knows all who are his. The Lord has reserved those 7,000 in Israel. The Lord still had people who were following him. Now, there's also a similar story like this in the New Testament that deals with Paul. So I want us to learn both from Elijah, then also want us to learn from Paul and see that the Lord's people are everywhere. And there's a lot of them, even if we don't know them ourselves. Now let's turn to the pages of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, we find out in the midst of of Paul's journeys, uh, this story comes to us about Paul in the city of Corinth. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. Well, you know, talk about mixed feelings in a place. You look at Paul, he's making these new converts in Corinth, yet he's also having to endure this persecution. In verse 6, we see that they're opposing Paul. They're becoming abusive to him. Well, I mean, what do you do about that? Whenever it seems like there's there's a great ministry that you're involved in and, and people are, are coming to know the Lord because of, of, of your efforts and because of your work and because Paul is, is preaching and devoting himself to these things, yet... You also have people who are becoming abusive, people who have, who have had enough and who want you out. What do you do about that? Well, we see obviously that, that Paul is doing a great deal of work. But how much opposition is he going to have to endure in this place? In verses 9 through 13, we find out that the Lord is going to give him some encouragement. Acts 18 verses 9 through 13. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. 
This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Now, now we're going to keep reading and see what happens in just a moment, but let's pause right here and let's notice a few things. For starters, what does the Lord tell Paul here? In verse 9, he tells Paul, don't be afraid. You know, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. Well, he's encouraging him that Paul is doing a great deal of, of work and he needs to continue on that work. We also find out a very interesting phrase in verse 10. He says that, uh, of course, the Lord, he says he is with uh, Paul, which, I mean, he obviously is. But he also tells him, no one is going to attack and harm you. Why? Why is that? He says, because I have many people in this city. He says, I have many people in this city. Isn't that interesting? That, that really, as we read it, uh, yes, you might look at this and you might say, well, he's already talking about those who have already become Christians. And perhaps that's the group that he's talking about. But, you know, it's also possible that God might be claiming potential Christians here, the ones who will come to, to know Christ, because I have many people in this city. You know, Paul didn't necessarily know all of those people, but yet what we do see is that this is part of the encouragement. The part of the encouragement is he's got many people. There's still a task that needs to be done with Paul, and we have this encouragement from from Paul that, you know, well, from the Lord to Paul, there we are, that the Lord is going to be with him. The Lord is going to help him. People aren't going to, to harm him. Yet at the same time, what we notice is we see that there still is a tax that's happening, isn't it? Uh, you know, isn't it interesting right there? The Lord encourages him. The Lord tells him he's going to take care of him. He's going to be with him. But yet he's still undergoing these negative things, these I mean, people are still bringing him and saying, well, this, this man is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Well, see, Paul, he could have been discouraged like what, Eli, like what Elijah was, or he could have kept preaching. Now, to be fair for Elijah and Paul, both, both of them here, we see that both of them continue on the work of the Lord. You know, Elijah, even though he said those things and was like, I'm the only one that's left, he still did what the Lord told him to do. And, and you know, he continues on. And uh, I guess maybe we didn't continue on in, in, uh, in the, the story there and, and see those things, but he does. He listens to the Lord. He follows the Lord. Paul does the same thing. This encouragement is uh, from these people that are in the city that belong to the Lord. So Paul could have been discouraged or he could have kept preaching. He keeps preaching. Verses 14 through 18. So now we see that even though Paul was encouraged by God, uh, there is still going to be some tough times ahead for him, even in the city of Corinth. Verses 14 through 18. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to him, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would have been reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. So this is what we see about what happened in, in the city of Corinth. And this is also the same place, keep in mind, that Paul is going to later send, uh, write these letters to him. He's going to write several letters, and we have uh, 1 Corinthians, we have 2 Corinthians, both of which are addressed to this church, because this church uh, still had some difficulties. They still need to be able to continue on uh, to grow. And we see that Paul was encouraged by God to continue on because of the many people uh, of the Lord in that city. 
Uh, but yet we see that, that trusting God, it does not mean that there's going to be an easy life ahead. What it does mean, however, is that the Lord will help you through whatever difficulties you might face. That's a lesson that both Elijah and Paul have in common. It's a lesson that we can learn from each one of them. I hope that, that we can have a bigger picture of the church, that we can recognize the church is big, the church is mighty, uh, the, the gates of death are never going to overcome the church. And whenever we are a part of this church, whenever we are a part of this kingdom of God, we are a part of something great. We're a part of something that is strong. We need to be people who are encouraging one another. We don't need to be having the thought that well, I'm the only one. No, no, no. The Lord has many other people in the city. The Lord has many other people in our country. The Lord has many other people in the world. And the Lord also has many other people who will come to know him and who will become followers of Christ. If we will speak to them, if we will tell them about the way of Christ so that they can follow it, we need to be people who will encourage one another to do that. That is what uh, Jesus has left us with. That is what Jesus wants us to do, is to teach him this new way that is found through Jesus Christ. Let's make sure that we, we stay busy doing the work of the Lord. How do you see this old world? Oh, how do you soak it all in? Oh, where did you come from and why are you here? And what does it all really mean? Am I just here to make money? Or die in the vain quest for peace? How can I find out if there's truth in the world? Or shall I just live as I please? I've been told that Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the only life worth living here today. I've been told that Jesus is the truth at all. Yeah. Mm -hmm.